0: And a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Greg Strawbridge. He is the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's authored and edited a number of books, including The Case for Covenant Communion and The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. He also runs WordMP3.com. Greg, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Thank you. Always glad to talk. This is amazing. Our listeners are going to be blown away by the sound quality and not going to believe that you have the whole setup set up in the front seat of your car. <laughs> Just came from the store. I needed to buy some new equipment and had to make the time
1: a work. So, yes. I love you, it. If you hear anything in the background, it's probably a car driving by. You sound great. But, well, you know, f- first, oh, you know ahead, my, my daughter, who, who's got an Internet channel called Internet Jewels, She does songwriting stuff. She has recorded a ton of her uh, uh, YouTube videos in her car because it's a quiet uh, place to do it. You know, apartments sometimes are very noisy and the room is not right. So actually a car is a pretty good
0: choice for good quality audio. Yeah, when you're pressed like that, I think cars and closets can often be places. (laughs) It's strange, but it's sort of counterintuitive. But yeah, I mean, they they can be actually the best places to, to do recording sometimes. Yes, the wardrobe. Yeah, absolutely. So our first reading is from Jeremiah, the 8th chapter, verses 18 through 9, 1. And here, Jeremiah is not a happy camper. His joy is gone. His heart is sick. He the, he, he hears the cry of his poor people. Um, God is, there is, you know, there's judgment has come. And he's been the one that's had to bring it, and yet he takes no joy in it yeah i mean he he he's not thrilled at the fact that what he's prophesied has come to pass, uh and things are not great for his people yes, and Jeremiah, you know in the setting historically
1: of the book, it's amazing to see the complexity of the whole book i I often when i uh, do a passage. I looked, looked at the structure. I tried to look at the structure of the book and what the whole picture is doing. And what you realize if you look at Jeremiah is that right in the center of the book is what's called the book of consolation. This is where you get the new covenant promise in chapter 31. But there's a lot of destruction and, and judgment that is due Israel in the earlier sections of the book. The, the center here of the book is the consolation but this is one of those passages where there's a call to judgment is her king not in her why have they provoked me to anger with their images with their foreign idols and so um there's a pretty strong word of of judgment and yet at the same time and this is again very much like what you, you can almost just uh, open your Bible, you know that old thing where you just open your Bible and randomly choose a passage? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, to the divining method, <laughs> the biblical divining method. Um, if you do that with Jeremiah, you're going to find almost always both words of judgment and words of consolation, both the covenant stipulations for judgment as well as a word of consolation. And blessing, and that's what you have here. Because in the middle of this statement, you have: "Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there?" I mean, although that itself is is kind of a rhetorical question, it it suggests that there is a balm in Gilead, that there is a physician, the great physician that that is to come and fulfill the promises to Israel. And so, they're in the midst of you know pre exilic judgment, and the house is about to come crashing down, and yet there will be in the center of that very book some of the most precious promises of what God's going to do to restore his people and to save uh, the whole house of Israel.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And one of the things that's interesting that you have, you know, this not only points to Christ as the true bomb in Gilead, but he he seems like a Christ type here also in that he, you know, you, you think about... Jesus looking at Jerusalem and saying long you know long have i get, wanted to gather you up under my wings i weep for you jeremiah feels the pain of the people you know he's not indifferent he's not a, he's it's not the picture of jonah right who's kind of disappointed when he, when he goes and prophesies the judgment and then is kind of disappointed that god doesn't let uh the you know let the Ninevites have it uh, you know, we see a different picture here that that Jeremiah seems to feel the pain of the people in their waywardness. You know, it's I imagine Paul saying, you know, how Paul says in Romans, "Oh, that I would be cut off, that my countrymen be saved." You, you, that seems to be. You have that a, a compassionate picture here of Jeremiah. I think. Yeah,
1: I really believe that is true, and the weeping prophet. Right, so um, it's not him just giving advice to people in pain. He's going through the pain himself.
0: Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's a great lesson for preachers and pastors that, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't seem to take it lightly that he's got to bring this word. And it's, you know, this, this, you know, you hear this kind of this parental injunction, you know, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Uh, but there, there, there seems to be some of that compassion there. It's interesting. I remember uh, the, the, I heard a lecture that Randall Zachman gave. He gave a series of lectures at Princeton Seminary. He's he's a guy who I've heard, I, I don't know how many people can say this, but somebody told me that he's read everything Calvin has written in the original languages, which is incredibly impressive to me. But he gave these wow. lectures on Calvin. It, it, they were called Reconsidering John Calvin. He would give an, a lecture on like Calvin and Kierkegaard, or Calvin and this. or Cal- And the, one of the lectures was on Calvin and Julian of Norwich on anger. And he talks about how Calvin sort of, you know, Melanchthon in here writing, and he's like, Melanchthon's like, you're doing great. You're doing great stuff, but if you could just stop calling people gesticulating monkeys and rascals and all this, like, huh? and Calvin's <laughs> like, no, John the Baptist was angry. This prophet was angry. I'm angry. And, and the elect will take it as chastisement and the reprobate, whatever. And then he contrasts it with Julian of Norwich and this, this revelation she has and when she's ill. And he says this, When Julian came to see all this, she has to admit that the effect of God's mercy and forgiveness is to lessen and wear away our anger. God, and then he, he says, God has mercy on us and forgives us to wear out our anger, to just ble- bleed it out of us, to take it away, to wear it away. My wife was telling me that she has read that our anger should be like ice, not like a rock. A rock, when you pour water on it, will not melt. But anger that is ice will melt when the love of God is poured on it. And that is what the mercy and forgiveness of God are meant to do. The mercy of God is not the remission of God's anger, but rather the removal of our anger. We know that we're in a right relationship to God when our our anger is worn away, when we are made gentle, when we are made patient, when we are made more loving, when we are made more compassionate. And I think that that seems to be a picture of Jeremiah here. Yes, I think so. on to the epistle here we have first Timothy chapter 2 verses one through 7 and we have Paul here urging that supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgivings be made for everyone for all for kings and those in high positions and then there is, he is this great little summary he says you know that everyone who, you know, God wants everyone to to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. And then he has this great little summary of the faith that there's one God, there's one mediator between God and humanity, Jesus Christ, the himself human who gave himself as a ransom for all. And so we have this really interesting short summary of what Paul thinks is at the heart of the saving truth that delivers human beings and, and redeems them.
1: Yeah, I think this passage is very important uh, for liturgical purposes because it reminds us that we are to have the prayers of the people which go through all of the things uh, in life that go through all of the aspects of, uh, of people's stations in life, kings, high positions, for the you know ordinary people of God to be able to um, have a peaceable life in all godliness, that it, it's, you know, all kinds of people are are indicated in this, in this, in this passage. And that's what we do in the liturgy. We bring all of the concerns of life into the liturgy. Uh, there's a really interesting discussion debate a couple of years ago at the Evangelical Theological Society. And it was uh, Peter Lightheart and a couple of other, um, uh, people out of the Reformed, uh, community. I believe that, um, Michael Horton was one of them. And, and they dis- they were discussing various things and, uh, Dr. Ladder was making this extremely important point, which is that all of life comes into the liturgy. So we we do uh we do have a kind of role in as the people of God praying for the needs of the of the world. And so, you know, our our theology cannot be apolitical because we're to pray for, for kings and those in high positions. And yet it's not political in the sense of we're gonna march on Washington, but it comes in through the liturgy that we end up making appeal and petition for the, the needs of the world. And so in our church, every Sunday we pray uh regarding our, our country. We pray regarding uh and, and mention presidents. And uh you know, most of our people, by the way, are, are on the right politically but every Sunday, uh, while um, President Obama was in office, we mentioned him by name and prayed for him. You know, And that's the right thing to do. That's what Paul enjoins right here. And uh, in this, he not only gives good advice about that, he gives good advice to frame the faith, uh, which is verse 5, where there is one God, there's also one mediator between God and, and humankind, Christ Jesus himself human who gave himself a ransom for all. And I'm always amazed reading the Apostle Paul that Paul often just throws in what would just be a jewel of a theological point in the most offhanded way.
0: Right, it, right, right. It,
1: it's it's not like he sits down and, you know, like a Thomas Aquinas, you know, uh, you know, point number one, point number two, uh, let us address the status questionis. It's not like that. It's like he's talking about, you know, first of all, pray for people, all kinds of people, and then he just throws in, you know, the, this tremendous insight about uh, the, the mediator role of Christ and that he gave himself as a ransom for all, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just tremendous stuff. I'm preaching through Galatians right now, and you see this all the way through Galatians. He'll just throw out something that's, you know, in the middle of the argument, and it it's you really see the humanity of the of the writers of the bible when you when you read them and try to understand their context because uh you know it is our work to do theology and to take together all the the bible teaches and to understand it uh even systematically but it certainly wasn't given as a systematic theology you know so you know this this, this tremendous statement uh paul makes for example in galatians where he says you know there's neither jew nor greek nor slave, nor free, nor male and female. If you look at the text real precisely, it doesn't say nor female. It says male and female. He's just invoking the fact that all humanity is now to be in Christ. Everything is to be considered in Christ. And I mean, that's just a profound word, uh, that's reflected in other, other passages that Paul writes as well. But it's a profound word, but you know, it's, it just flows out of him in a way that's uh, uncannily Human. (laughs) He's making the argument and it comes through. And here's another example. You know, he's making the argument and he is doing this. And uh, to connect the two passages. So he says, I was appointed as a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth and and so just reflecting on the mission of Paul to to reach the the gentiles the, the gent and I guess I I'm, I'm I'm speaking more about Galatians than this passage but it it's spilling over in my mind because I've been spending so much time on it you think about Paul being the messenger to the gentiles um you know Acts 10 is the first time the gentiles come in uh, to the faith through the baptism of Cornelius and his household by Peter. And then in Acts 13 is the first missionary journey. And that's where you basically get the Galatians, uh, there in Acts 13 and 14 in Pisidian Antioch. That's Paul's first sermon. So, uh, and then you have the book of Galatians written, I believe, in response to some, uh, Judaizing, uh, teaching that was coming in. Uh, to those churches in the Roman district, Romanic province of Galatia, and uh, but Paul is like he's on—he's the first guy on the team. You know, he's he's the first guy doing this work. He's the first uh, person who's actually taking the gospel beyond the borders of of Judaism of the day and bringing it to uh, all kinds of different people. In fact, just read through—you know, Acts. 13 and 14 it's just fat they're fascinating stories you know they're going to preach and they're in this uh very pagan place and somebody thinks that he's zeus <laughs> yeah
0: you know yeah the, I, people think that about me all the time i know it's, are you well I, I usually get hermes so right, it's just... <laughs> exactly because you're you're fleet you're fleet-footed yeah the other thing too i think that 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 missiological connection. I mean, you could read this as sort of sociological quietness, like okay, we pray for everybody and keep your head down. But I think it's more like missiological, like pray for all the leaders and let's live a, a, a peaceable life so that by our witness more and more could come to Christ. Like you know, the, the people, you know, the slaves, the kings, the ruler, everybody. You know that that that. So there's something about not just praying for them, but also uh, living this sort of peaceable life for uh, th- th- those. Outside the church, so that they they could come to know the truth of the one God and the mediator Christ Jesus. I've always thought of this. Maybe I
1: don't think I'm disagreeing with you on that point, but I, I've always thought of this as Paul is deeply reflective of the kind of uh, Jewish culture because at one level, you know, you you say we're the people of God, we just want to be left alone, we just want to be. Uh, Able to live a peaceful and quiet life because we're not evildoers. We're not violating the law. We're we're s- subject to the authorities in the society that we're in. I mean, you think Daniel and just the whole history. Of, you know, Joseph and all the way through, of of Jews having to be in a context where they're not the dominant force. In that society, and they have to be—they have to—they just want to live a peaceable life. They want to just practice their uh, faith, their life, uh, without being harassed all the time. And that's kind of the way I see his point here. Um, but of course, it's not just that. And that's why I say the end of the passage is he's proclaiming the word to the Gentiles. And so it is mythological in, in that sense. But in a certain way, it, I think it's kind of reflective of that uh, Jewish impetus to be able to live your life without interference from the powers that be. And we pray to that end. You know, we pray that we might be able to have a peaceable life and not be you know, evildoers. Like, no, in other words, uh you know, Christians are not jihadists here.
0: We're right. <laughs> We're right.
1: And I believe it could be something good has train.
0: And on to the the gospel reading, which I think is like so interesting. Uh, it, uh, this is probably one of the more challenging parables to preach here in Luke sixteen verses one through thirteen. That the, the, you have this steward who there's a rich man who has this manager and charges were br- were brought that this manager squandering the rich man's property. So he says, "What is this? I hear about you. Give me an accounting of, of you know what's going on." And the manager's thinking, "What can I do? You know, I can't. I can't dig. I can't. I can't beg. So uh, what I'll do is uh, I'll." cut all these people's debts so that when i'm dismissed i they'll welcome you into their home so i'll sort of uh he cuts all these people's bills in half basically settles all the debts and then the master is actually he commends this the the master commends the manager for acting shrewdly and making friends by, by dishonest wealth
1: Yeah, it's really a funny parable. I think that you've got to read the Gospels and Jesus' teaching often with a really good sense of humor if you don't have a good sense of humor, if you don't, if you can't see anything funny in these things, then you're probably missing it. Um, Jesus was truly human, so he laughed, uh, we think. <laughs> um, but according to Presbyterianism, he never laughed. But uh exactly. if you read the Gospels, it's, it's pretty apparent that some of these things are funny. And he's he's making this point, and it, the punchline, so whatever you do with the details of the parable, um, the punchline is this, that he acted shrewdly, and verse 8, um, for the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of light. And and what he's saying is you, you have to put things in their proper place. I think a biblical example of this, and notice it is about money. He says, I tell you, friends, um, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes." Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful in much, and whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with dishonest wealth, Who will entrust you with true riches? And so I think a great biblical example of a person that does this is Barnabas. Actually, if you go back and read the early parts of Acts, Barnabas comes, he has a plot of land. He's one of the first guys that says, hey, you know what? I'm going to sell this land and support the mission of the gospel. Now, why does Barnabas do that? And some people would look at that and say, communism, rah, rah, rah. Socialism, rah, rah, rah. Uh, Sorry for all the socialists listening here. That's not what it means. Barnabas believes the word of Jesus. Barnabas says he knows that according to Jesus' teaching, that this place will be utterly destroyed, which is exactly what happened in 70 AD. The land that he owned was not going to be worth anything <laughs> in a very short period of time. So, you know, this is very, you know, judgment back to Jeremiah, right? There's a promise of judgment that's coming. And so you have to do this. Now, by the way, it's interesting that Jeremiah kind of does the same thing because at one point he goes and buys land. And he buys land to prove his consolation that God is going to bring you back, is going to restore you. But in the case of Barnabas, he's supporting the mission by, you know, selling the land and bringing it to him. So he's using the, the wealth that he has here for the right purpose. He's, he's actually not serving the master mammon. He's serving the gospelly serving Jesus with, with his money. And so I, I think that's what we should do. Uh, when I've tried to preach this point, this passage, I've tried to make the point that if your life is consumed with the acquisition of money, then you are missing what the purpose of money is. Use your money to accomplish something well, to, to accomplish gospel ends. That's what money is for. It's, it's to uh, you know be shrewd with it so that you win yeah. people to the gospel. I could give you one, uh, if you will, a practical example of this. So we have, uh, as a church, tried to help uh, those that have needs in our con- context, congregation. Sometimes in our broader community, we've been a vehicle to to help people that had serious long term illness and various things, just people that fell. On hard times as well, I'm sure most churches do this. But we, we started the practice some years ago of giving interest-free loans to people, and not in not in every case does that work out, you know. <laughs> and we've had a couple of cases where it just didn't work out. It's like the person, you know, got mad and they left the church, and now they're never going to pay this back, even though you know we said, you know, we we will help you, and all kinds of you know, this is the way it goes in mer- in Mercy Ministries and Benevolence Ministry, but we had this serious conversation about this one person who was very embittered toward our church, despite the fact that we had lended this person many tens of thousands of dollars over a couple of years. And so we had this conversation of, you know what, let's just say we totally forgive that debt. Let's just use our money shrewdly. If this will move this person toward grace, toward the gospel, and and cause them to give praise to God. Why why not just do it? Yeah. You know, why not just use it this way? There's no, you know, we, it's not like we're a bank and we're trying to, you know, make
0: money on it. We're not, we're not. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is a gospel purpose. Yeah. You know. It's interesting. Robert Capon looks at this parable and sees in it something similar to the parable of the unforgiving servant. He says there forgiveness starts from the top down. Right. Where this where this. You know, the servant owns a, owes a debt. The master dies, to absolves the debt, dies to the whole relationship. And then the servant would rather kind of live a bookkeeper's life than a spendthrift's death and short-circuits all the forgiveness. But he says, you know, that the point of the parable remains unchanged. Grace only works on those it finds dead enough to raise. And he says that the, the same point is made in the parable, the unjust steward, he says, but by reversal of the story's device. forgiveness in, Forgiveness in this parable starts from the bottom up. Here it's the lord of the steward who starts out unwilling to drop dead to any of his bookkeeping. He won't die to the steward's peculations, and he will not die to the accounts past due that he he has never succeeded in collecting. The steward, however, does die, and because he's freed by his death to think things he could not have thought before, he's the one from the bottom of the heap, as it were, who becomes the agent of life for everyone in the parable. He becomes life from the dead for his Lord because somehow the sight of a loser bringing off a coup like this in the very thick of his losses finally loosens the old boy up. My God, the master said, my whole life has been a joke. And now, only now I learned to laugh at it. But the steward is also able to be the resurrection of his Lord's debtors because they wouldn't consent to deal with anybody but a crook like themselves. They would never have gone near him if they hadn't been convinced he was dead to all the laws of respectable bookkeeping. And that's where, why he thinks that Capon reads the, the unjust steward as the Christ figure. He said he's a dead ringer for Jesus himself. First off, he dies and rises like Jesus. Second, by his death and resurrection, he raises others like Jesus. But third and most important of all, the unjust steward is the Christ figure because he's a crook like Jesus. The neat contribution of this parable to our understanding of Jesus is its insistence that grace cannot come to the world through respectability respectability regards only life success winning. It will have no truck with a grace that works by death and losing, which is the only kind of grace there is.
1: Well, there you have it. Hard to compete with, uh, Father Capen on, on this sort of thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. I and think, I think that, all... that Jesus, that picture of Jesus also is the one I think that frees you up in relationship to money.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, parables, although I think we, we ought to be reading the parable for the one, uh, main emphasis that's there and in this case I think it's pretty clearly you need to be faithful with the relatively unimportant money in order to be entrusted with true riches that's I think the main point uh, like in the parable of the uh, you know of the uh, prodigal son the point in that parable is always kind of uh, the postscript the postscript is the uh, the elder brother you know the right. point is the elder brother he's talking to the Pharisees so uh even though it illustrates beautifully grace and repentance and these kinds of things uh and in this one it illustrates that and i just think that there's a marvelous truth that we can look at uh the parables and glean so much from them uh it's mul- truly multivalent you know there's as many things going on that we could focus in on and uh the idea of this person represents something that christ himself do- uh does is is a wonderful a wonderful point, I think, that to to rejoice in. And in this passage, I, I would say that we always have to remember that whatever you make of the parables, ultimately, the whole story is Jesus comes and accomplishes only what he can accomplish uh, for us. Basically, he paid a debt we could not
0: pay. Amen to that. Ransom for all and blessings to you as you preach about that Christ this week and to our listeners as well. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media all of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground thanks to greg strawbridge for being my guest today and thanks again to you all for listening until next time fare thee well